the difference between self-employment and unemployment is that unemployed get money from the government. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that one before, but it's true. I think I just made that up just now, so... Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to a second hour of hopefully sort of entertaining, kind of amusing, at least bemusing, um, something to do to keep you from drool, no, to make you drool, yeah, uh, of the personal wealth coach. Uh, we appreciate you all for listening. Uh, the We keep hearing about people that are spending their Saturday mornings listening to our program. And we're both flattered and amazed that someone could decide to spend their very valuable weekend time listening to two bald guys spout off about things like inverted yield curves and uh, contango and things like that. Well, I think they're doing something else, too. I don't think they're just... There might be some people who are just sitting around listening to us. It'd be nice, but I don't think so. Uh, I hope they're doing something else, but hopefully not stuff with, like, power tools, because our droning voices may cause there to be... We Maybe we should put a label on there. Please do not operate heavy vehicles while listening to this radio program. Yeah, it could be. Might save some people, you know, missing limbs and some things in the future that's... You can put a little label on it that says, please take with food. Yeah, please take with food or beer or wine. That that makes it much better. Yeah, yes, there yeah. we go. There, there you go. Uh, Saturday right. morning, maybe a little early for most people, but if you're listening to us, you might need it. There. Well, th- well, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and if you'd like to join with us this 21st, 21st, 2021, 21st. July 3rd. Yes. July 3rd, 2021. And it, and I'm, and I know who the president is too, so that's okay. I'm oriented as a time and space in the president. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, right? Of course. Yeah, we we do well, have anyway, a, a question we, we didn't do, get to gonna, last I was gonna, hour. I was going to give him our uh, email address. Oh yeah, let's do that. You can email us, and we will try to answer on the air. And you can email us at either Jeff at tpwc dot com, that's Papa Whiskey Charlie dot com, or Jake. They say Jake or Jeff. Uh, you said Jeff. And then Jake so at tpwc.com. I had an email come in while I was saying that. And it distracted me. Then I forgot what I was talking about, but that's normal. We have another question out here uh, from a regular listener. And his question is, sometimes it's hard to resist looking at the market as it continues to increase. There's some peculiarities in that his portfolio is not matching the S&P 500. Sometimes the S&P 500 is going up very, very quickly, and he's flat or a little bit down. And other times the S&P is down, and he's up. So what's going on there? And it's a, uh, it's a good question. Um, the simple answer is that you're not invested completely in the S&P 500, or you would have the same return as the S&P 500. Uh, And that's kind of true across the board. When we talk about an index return, we're trying to get a broad look at the overall stock market. 
the reality is that we're generally not recommending that our clients be in the entirety of the stock market. There's places in the market that we prefer over other places, and we have reasons for that. Uh, most people would have reasons for that when they say we think this area is going to do well or, or vice versa. And we look at really, really long-term um, returns of big asset classes to say, hey, which ones do we put together for what? But the, the simple answer is those are just parts of the market, not the overall market. Uh, it's kind of like when people talk about inflation and they say, uh, how can you take food and, and energy out of inflation when people spend money on that every day? Well, the stock market and the inflation measurements are the overall large average of this big, big thing. An individual almost never falls into that category. An individual is going to be individual. I know that's weird. It's hard to average you as an individual. Otherwise, you might have 1.3 kids, which is difficult for your second child, I guess. Uh, go ahead. Another aspect of this is the fact that during bull markets, the standard Poor's 500 stock index is driven very much by large cap growth companies. Large cap growth companies over a long period of time do not have a particularly good return. During bull markets, they have an excellent return. They have a very poor return during bear markets. And getting into them is more risky than we particularly want to go. And we don't, we're not interested in going that way. We typically invest in value. Uh, value companies are companies that are reasonably priced. Their stock prices are reasonable and they don't depend on future earnings so much. Is that a surefire way to get the job done? No, but it is the way that historically has worked the best. Over a long period of time, smaller companies and value companies, value-oriented companies, have done better than, as far as total return, have done better than large-cap growth companies. But during bull markets, and we are definitely in a runaway bull market right now, large-cap growth companies do very, very well. Now, is there any guarantee that they won't do well forever? No, there's no guarantee about it, much of anything. But if your portfolio is not following the S&P 500, you should smile because, as I mentioned earlier, if you invested in the S&P 500 stock index in the year 2000, if you were invested in the year 2000 and you measured your return and subtracted inflation out of it, it took 13 years for you to break even again after the market started to fall. That's the problem with high growth companies, high growth companies, be they small cap growth or large cap growth. They're dependent upon their earnings growing forever, and earnings don't grow forever. So we tend to be more conservative, which means that we don't gain as much in the bull markets and hopefully don't lose as much in the bear markets. Fantastic. And we have another question, and one that comes dangerously, dangerously close to asking us about sports. It's terrifying, but they happen to ask the right question about sports. It's more about the monetary side of sports than the other one question is are you familiar with the new college amateur sports nil if so curious if this will eventually trickle down the high school to high school and, and the likes nil there was a ruling and there have been other rulings in little in lower courts there was a higher court ruling that said to um the amateur sports leagues in general uh, mostly the ones that are associated with colleges, that you can't tell kids that they can't make money doing sports to some extent. It's not very clear because it was a very specific ruling, but this is an area that we have talked about 
around the, the field of sports in the past. And those of you who have listened to this program for very long know that we don't even know who won the Super Bowl. We don't follow that stuff. Our, our stuff has to do with money and the economy and how and we, we definitely understand how much of college budgets come from sports and so on. So what is NIL? It's not a new league. Uh, it is a, a name, image, and licensing. It is the... Likeness. Likeness. Likenesses. Uh, so if you're on a Wheaties box, you should get paid for being on a Wheaties box. If you're a star in your sports and other people in other career paths would get paid for exactly the same treatment and you cannot be, there's a problem with that. And we look at that very, very directly and say, if, if a large organization is benefiting from your likeness and you are not, um, and but let me kind of take a step back and say, I understand from people's perspectives, you want there to be an amateur league where amateurs are, are, are competing against other amateurs. And that's fine. But as soon as large amounts of money are being made in that, it's not an amateur league anymore. It doesn't matter if the athletes are making the money or not. It is no longer amateur when large amounts of compensation arrive. If it's being paid to a studio for making an album a la old Detroit Records with Motown and so on, where the, where the artists were not getting paid, but the studio was, or going back to the early to mid 20th century when it was the movie studios and their actors that were under contract and they just had to do it and the studio got paid all the money and the actor didn't really get a chance to negotiate on any of that stuff. We over the years have said that's that's not reasonable. That's that's a case that, you know, the corporation, yes, they may have put together the group that did whatever they did, but each individual needs to be paid for what they're doing. We see that as real free market. Whether or not it trickles down to high school, if someone is a big enough star in high school that they can sell their image, their, their likeness, or their name to some company for money, more power to them. They could use that money for college or for their long-term benefit. I think it's important that we train people on how to use money when they're getting paid at that young age. But I think if the college is making a huge amount of money from sports, that's, that's not what the college was built for. It, and it's nice when colleges say this in, increases our tuition as, as more people want to go to our college because of our football team or our basketball team. And that makes sense. Not paying the people that are doing that for you, that doesn't make sense. And over time, I expect that to completely change just like those other areas that I mentioned did. It will come to a point where colleges will be able to pay their athletes. Now, how that's done might still be regulated. But not paying them is not, <laughs> that, well, yeah, that avoids all these regulation issues. You just don't pay them for doing work that you're getting paid for them to do. Well, that's a problem. You know, when I went to college, an undergraduate, I got paid for doing work-study programs. I got paid for making signs. I got paid for doing things. And I was definitely a college student during the period of time. Right. But it was, interestingly enough, illegal to pay members of the sports team to do the same thing. Right. If you are uh, working in the athletics department, 
as uh, bringing water out, as a physical trainer, whatever that is. If say you're in, in, in part of the health department and you, you, you know, of, and you're studying health in school and you go and you work with the football team, you get money. If you're a teacher's assistant at a school, you get paid money because you're adding to the value of the school. So, yeah, I don't think it's at all right that college athletes don't get paid. Now, will that change the way sports are done at college? Yes, it will. There's a lot of changes that are going to happen from that. But when we look at it purely economic, it is the, one of the only places left that you're allowed to have somebody work for you and provide you with a great deal of revenue. And not only don't you pay them, you're not allowed to pay them. That's weird. Uh, we think sports are weird in general, but that's a weird part of sports. And the fact that everybody's been kind of okay with that for as long as we have been is weird as well to me. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to recognize that the college sports industry is billions, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars at least, maybe even more. Quite normally at the, at the large school level, the highest paid employee of the school is a coach of one of their teams. Not the dean, not the president, not the physics department chair. No, the coach of the football team or the high school or, or and not the high school or, or the basketball team that is going to be the highest paid employee of the of the college. That's insane. And yet the, and yet the people on the field who are getting the concussions and who are possibly tearing their knees up so they can't ever play again don't get paid anything. I mean, yeah, they get they get free tuition, they get a scholarship, maybe. Well, but they don't get paid. Teachers' assistants get that too. They get a scholarship too, and they get paid. So you know, we're not we're not out here to say let's disrupt this this sports league. No, we're just saying, hey, this this is not the standard that we apply. It's not legal anywhere else in the country to do exactly what's happening here. It's not slavery, and I've heard that said again and again. It's more like volunteer work that somebody else is getting paid a lot of money for. And they, they do get their scholarships. That's nice. But that's not the same thing. It isn't the same thing. And I think it's important that we draw that line. That's something that part of the reason why I've never liked sports is because I look at the rules that we apply to sports that don't make any sense and aren't applied to other areas. And this is a big one. Uh, how in the world can you have somebody that you require to show up to work, must wear your uniform when they show up to work, must work extremely hard or they get cut. I mean, they're volunteering to do it. You get paid lots of money and you're not allowed to pay them. It's not like there's a shortage of it because it is a, a good way to get tuition, but it's also one of the stepping stones to go into professional sports where they actually do get paid money. And a lot of the professional sports stars drop out of college so that they can get paid. And yeah, if, if the whole idea is to keep amateur professionals in there so that they get their, their college taken care of, the way you do that is you pay them while they're there for the revenue that they're bringing in. Will that change the system? Yeah, it will. But, but we're totally for that. Or at least I am. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Speaking of jobs, we had a jobs report. This was jobs report week. The Labor Department reported that the during the month of May, no, I'm sorry, in the month of June, the U.S. economy added 850,000 new employees, which is cool. Now, to put that in perspective, and it's important to put that in perspective, in April, 
we only added 269,000 jobs. Then in May, we added 583,000 jobs. Now we've jumped to 850,000 jobs, which means people are being hired at a, an accelerating rate. And the number of layoffs are dropping. We we just had three hundred sixty four thousand for the for the last week, uh, which is the lowest point since the pandemic started. So lower layoffs and higher job creation; those are both really really good numbers. There's a peculiarity here because the unemployment rate rose from five point eight to five point nine percent, despite the fact we hired eight hundred fifty thousand new people and there was no increase in the labor participation force. Rand, we didn't lay off more people. We laid off. Fewer people than we did the week before. There's a peculiarity in that. When we count the jobs, we count jobs, literally. And if a person is working two jobs, they get the count of two. Yep. When we count jobs. When we say 850,000 new employees, if a person is working two jobs, then they got they were two out of that 850,000. What if they're, they're working, working three all jobs? of them? I don't think so. Yeah. Huh. Unless, unless, unless they're Bob the computer or something like could, that. Could be. Anyway, but when the unemployment rate is counted, the, they can do a household survey. They phone up a lot of houses, and they do statistical analysis, and they conclude that 5.9%. There was actually a 0.01% increase in unemployment, and it was a peculiarity to this numbers. That was a rounding error, in essence. It wasn't a big thing. but Or it could be that they, slightly more people said, all right, I'm actually going to go out and try to get a job now, where before they'd said, hey, I'm not even going to try during the pandemic. And that's one of the questions they ask. Are you trying to find a job? And if they said yes, if there's more people saying, yeah, I'm going to go back to the workforce, that yeah, could cause the, the number to go up. It could, but in this case, the participation rate didn't go up. Right. So it's a rounding it's error. Just, it's, it's a basically a rounding error, but it does mean there's, there's still a lot of people out there, about 6.8 million people, which is a lot better than we had before. But 6.8 million people who were working that aren't working, as Jake said, quite a number of them have retired. But there's also about 150,000 new entrants on average a month into the job force. So right. anytime that we're above 150,000 new employees in a given month, we're gaining ground. And we're going to gain ground slowly over time. I realize a lot of places are saying help wanted, but there's also a lot of places that are having trouble in processing enough people to count. And anecdotally, at least in the Labor Department and the Commerce Department studies of these things, they're finding that... Uh, Companies, in many cases, are onboarding about as many people as they can afford to onboard at any given point. Because when you bring somebody in new, you have to have somebody to train them. So that means you take a person off work to train the person who's learning to do the work. And they can only bring in so many people at a time. The big labor shortage right now is in the low-wage service industries. And that's incidentally where we had the biggest gains. Um, so... We had really good, healthy gains in the service industries. And if you've been to a restaurant recently, you know why. Because a lot of people are going out to eat. A lot of people are going to events. A lot of people are going on cruises again. A lot of people are going to holidays. We have another email in here from Philip. Thanks, Philip. He says, future issues once they start paying the college and high school athletes. He says, I can only imagine the number of band members or cheerleaders who dr or drill team or pep rally leaders who are all up in arms because they're not getting paid. But then again, the problem to be solved here would be how do they determine how much value do they bring to the university or high school? As you said, how that's going to look, we don't know yet. And then he thanked us for the program. And I, that's a great observation. We don't know how it looks. But again, if you're in an organization where you're learning something, 
um, like how to march in the band or you've got a band scholarship and you go out and you make as a band, you make money for the university or you're hired to do an entertainment program during a sports program. It may be something that's a very small stipend, like a teacher's assistant. They're not even paid minimum wage a lot of times because they also have tuition going in there. If they've got a scholarship and they're making a little bit of money, or if they're in the band and that money that they would have been paid is going to their tuition instead, that makes sense to me. Uh, it's, it's not hard to figure that stuff out if you're in the process of hiring people. If you're in a band in a university even on scholarship and you go out and cut a record with a couple of other guys or a couple of other girls or whatever. That's right. And you get some money off of it. It doesn't disqualify you from being in the band with the NCAA. If you're in a sports up until this in NIL came out, if you're in a sports program and you went out and said, I'm going to have my picture on Wheaties and I'm going to get paid for it. Or I'm going to the first guy who did it sponsored a fireworks stand. Or, or even uh, name? or even go out and say, I'm going to be in an all-star team and we're going to go play an uh, exhibition event and get paid for it. Nope, then you, you're you fired. Immediately get, get kicked out of the, the, you get kicked out of the athletic and you, program. And you lose school. your scholarship. You can't go to school anymore. But the band doesn't, that isn't true of the band. It isn't true of anybody who's not subject to NCAA rules. NCAA is, frankly, a joke. It, it goes back to the time when... Schools played each other and on grass fields, and they didn't have uh, network TV, and the schools didn't make billions of dollars off of the off of the, what the students were doing. Yeah, and we say billions of dollars. That is real. Universities can measure the amount of money they make from sports and nearly the same amount that they make from tuition. You just have to keep that in mind. It it is important to know. You know, this is when it comes to, to colleges in general, to, to universities in general, there used to be some really clear delineations. If it was a public school, generally the, pay, the state used to pay the tuition for the people that went to that school, almost all of it. It was just a small amount that was required to be paid by the, uh, by the student. And a, a lot of baby boomers remember that. I talk to them when we're talking about how much did you pay for college Way back, and they said, oh, when I did it, they didn't charge much. It was just a few dollars a, a, a credit hour, and it was a public, it was mostly state. State-funded schools are still less expensive than private schools because they get state funding. But they also get lots of funding from other sources, and they are kind of matching prices with each other across the board in a very monopolistic fashion. They are not in competition with each other though for price as much as they are for getting you to their campus. Is it to get back to the jobs thing? I meant to fail to mention something. The fact that the unemployment rate went up from 5.8 to 5.9 caused the stock market to rise. Right. And it caused the stock market to rise because the report, even though we had 850,000 new employees and which was higher than estimate, than the estimates were. The fact that the unemployment rate went up slightly was perceived by the by participants in the market as being an indication that the Federal Reserve would not need to tighten early. And this is the thing. This is the thing that people are afraid of. I say traders, investors, serious investors are afraid of something. Traders are afraid of something at this point. 
generally speaking, a recovery historically in the, in the history of the United States, at least in the 20th and 21st century, has been cut off by the Federal Reserve raising interest rates too soon. Now, whether or not it was really too soon, that's a question. Because you but can't really go back and say it would have done this if they had done that because we don't know what it would have done if they'd done a different thing. Like in 1937, it looked like we were coming out of the, the Depression. We were still in the Depression. It looked like we were coming out. So the Federal Reserve, being conservative at the time, decided to raise interest rates, and they put us back into the recession. And we, they followed suit again and again and again. And it's generally into the Depression, yeah, yeah. We actually came out of the Depression, went back into the Depression because the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. And Well, there's no absolute certainty to that, but the academic consensus is that's what happened. The reason we took so long to recover from the 2007, 2008, 2009 collapse, financed the Great, the Great Recession, was because the Federal Reserve was not aggressive enough in keeping interest rates down and infusing money into the system. They tapered off too soon. The federal government cut spending. There's a whole series of things that happened that kept us in a in a slump for a long period of time. It appears that both Congress, the political part, well, Congress and the political parties and the Federal Reserve have learned something from that. So we got very aggressive about flushing money into the system this time around. We've had this tremendous boom and we're getting a little burst of inflation. And if we follow, if we follow history, and I think we are likely to follow the history of this thing, we've done this before and this temporary inflation burst will mark if, if everything works out well, and I hope it does, we're following the pattern post-World War II. Post-World War II, as we came out of the war, the government cut spending dramatically. They cut borrowing dramatically. They dumped a lot of people. Demobilization of the armed forces meant they dumped literally millions of unemployed onto the economy while they were cutting buying from in industry. So we had fewer places, fewer jobs and lots of people who wanted to work. Fortunately, at the time, there were some visionaries in government, visionaries in the Federal Reserve. They cut interest rates. They pumped the GI Bill into so that a lot of soldiers could go to college, which raised tuitions rather dramatically. And but still it, does. But also added a lot of debt to the government. But and they earned it back a lot more with the tax revenue from college-educated people, though. And they, start, and they put the VA loan out. They put a whole lot of things out that would allow those soldiers to do something and to give them training so they could get back to work. The government spent a lot of money and flushed a lot of money into the economy. We had a burst of inflation in the, early, in the late 1940s going into 1950, just like we're having now. It lasted about two or three years. Then it went away, and we, but it heralded. The post-World post War II economic boom that lasted through the 50s and into the 60s. Now, I think that's the model for what's going on right now. We had a, and the other model is 1982, by the way. Yeah. I don't know. But, but not the Orwellian version, just the actual year. That was 1984. Uh, yeah. yeah, 1984. 1982, we had, when there's an externally caused recession, and we've just had an externally caused recession, as opposed to a business cycle recession, an externally caused recession is one that is in, that is imposed by an external event, and those do happen from time to time. I guess a major national national disaster of some kind might cause one. We haven't had a big enough national disaster to cause a recession, but when the government Be, besides does something, pandemic. or the Federal Reserve does something, well, that's a, the the pandemic is the one. The pandemic didn't cause a recession; the lockdown did. Right. 
we chose not we chose to kill we we've over 600,000 P- Americans died we could have had double or triple that number die had we not done the lockdown that's right. at least the consensus so we shut down the government effectively put restrictions we didn't shut down the government shut down the economy 47% of the economy well, was effectively shut down the government did get shut down just a different occasion and the same thing in a in a peculiar way happened in 1982 when Paul Volcker was nominated and confirmed as the head of the Federal Reserve, his number one job was to control inflation, which was double digits. He had about 12% inflation about the time he was he became the head of the Federal Reserve. He and the Federal Reserve Board agreed that we needed to shut down inflation as the number one priority. So he raised the short-term interest rates to about 15%, which cut off borrowing, cut off expansion, caused a lot of people to be laid off. And we had a severe but short recession in 1982. It was called the Great the Recession of 1982. They didn't call it the Great Recession, but they could have called it the Great Recession. The last time we had a recovery in a quarter as big as the one as we're likely to see in the second quarter this year, a double-digit annualized rate, was in 1982 as we were coming out of that. So what's happening here is a, par- is a pattern where the government does something or the Federal Reserve does something that slows down the economy dramatically to cure an ill of some kind. And when they come out of it, if the government steps in, if the Federal Reserve steps in and flushes a lot of money into the system to get out of it, we've seen this happen at least twice before in the last hundred years. And as it happened, we saw a short burst of inflation, which we're seeing right now, lasted one or two years, two, three years on the outside. And this is an interesting point. Both of those ushered in a 10-year economic boom. Now, will it absolutely happen again this time? I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, according to Mark Twain, which I think is very accurate. I strongly suspect, and this is a prognostication, by the way. It's not a promissory statement. It's a prognostication. I strongly suspect we will see a repetition, a repeating of the Roaring Twenties. I think we're on the verge, as we come out of this, we'll have a burst of inflation, the inflation will go away, and we will have an economic boom and increased productivity as we employ artificial intelligence, well, not really artificial intelligence, learning smart machines. Yeah, smart we, re- machines. Really, we really don't have artificial intelligence yet. Uh, I don't know if you saw the study, but there was a study, a new scientist, about the uh, ability of artificial intelligence computers to predict what would happen if a ball rolled down a ramp and it hit something. Right. And they failed it miserably. They're not artificially intelligent yet. They're artificially stupid. Yeah. But they're good at figuring out a very specific area very well. So when they've been trained in one area like chess or like calculating what's one plus one, they get to be very smart in that area. As that gets utilized better, we're going to have productivity go up. I'm totally in agreement, by the way, for some of the same reasons that we had the Roaring Twenty, automation and industry. I mean, at that point, it was the the industrial line. And Henry Ford had people standing standing side by side, each one doing a different thing as the line moved by. Uh, that was an automation that just simply hadn't existed on the planet before. And now we're moving to robots basically doing the same thing, only sometimes the robots move in a line instead of the the industrial thing. Interestingly enough, the countries that have employed smart machines, in other words, machines to assist people, which is really what we have now. It's very machines that require people to supervise them and make things easier for people to do. 
have not seen a great increase in unemployment. As a matter of fact, they've seen a decrease in unemployment. They've seen more and more jobs occur with higher and higher wages. We go through some bumps, and we're going through some bumps, and I think we'll continue to go through some bumps, and that's an important thing to recognize. Economic system in the United States is bumping up against some constraints right now. Big the ones. Constraints, Hard ones constraints, to, get a, to get around. Supply of raw materials, supply of parts, uh, transportation, and labor. But all those are solvable. There's still room to grow. There's still lots of room to grow. There's still lots of people to employ. It's a matter of shifting our system around to accommodate the people who want to be employed, who aren't employed. It's a matter of shifting our system around to figure out how to get those raw materials to where they need to be. They exist. The raw materials are out there. The need for them is over here. The system to get them from one place to another needs to be fixed. And we have, by as prices go up, we provide a tremendous incentive for entrepreneurs to fix that system. And they're working on it really, really hard. There's going to be some people become very wealthy doing it. Uh, but I, I was going to give a, an example of how the chain is moving. We've been talking for a year and longer about how the supply chains are going to change uh, based on what happened during the pandemic. General Motors just made a deal to buy all its lithium from an American miner for the battery factories that it's manufacturing right now because in 10 years they estimate that 50 percent of the vehicles on the road this is general motors they've got an, an invested interest in an internal combustion engine they say that in 10 years fully 50 percent of the new cars sold will be electric because they're going to be cheaper because they're going to run longer because they're going to be uh, easier to drive and safer, and you just go down this long list. This is from General Motors. This isn't, this isn't somebody that's known for making compact vehicles. This is, this is GM. So they're buying from an American lithium mine, the, a new consortium of mines being built in America uh, that are going to be utilizing new methods of getting lithium out of water in a safe way. And I, we've talked about this throughout the year, that a lot of these rare earth metals, the reason why the mining of rare earth metals went to China is because they were so dirty that they were polluting groundwater. They were leaving ecological disasters for, for however long, there, centuries until we clean it up. And so we said, all right, in California was where the big rare earth mine was before it moved to before the mines all went over to china california's got some strong ecological rules that's a little they bit of an understanding they didn't move the mines they moved the mining oh okay i started to say yeah. dig up, digging up a mine would it's be very just dirty big wheels you put very large wheels on them until you get to the ocean and then you i don't know pontoons maybe a lot that of would, pontoons that would, that would work um as we're moving forward, we're developing new technology. Once things get expensive, things that would have been too expensive to try before are not too expensive to try now. And as we try them, they become less expensive to do as we get better at them and we have more people doing them. The way you mine it, the way you filter it out of water, there's a lot of lithium in the water. It gets absorbed into the water. And if we're pulling it out, it's actually cleaning the environment rather than the reverse by mining it. And I said this six months ago, we're going to have to find ways of mining this stuff that's clean. 
and it's out there. We just have to figure out how to do it, and eventually it'll be cheaper than doing it the other way. There's an example about how doing things becomes better as prices go up, and it's a pain to go to the gas station and see that the price of gasoline has gone up. But still, the reality is we were a country dependent upon the Middle East for oil. There was lots of noise about the fact that we're running out of oil in the planet. We had to hit peak production. There wasn't going to be any more oil. We were all going to be in deep trouble, and oil would be $1,000 a barrel. It didn't happen. Why? Because once it hit around $100 a barrel, people began to innovate in the United States, and they figured out how to do what we now know is a common thing called fracking, which was considered impossible at the time. Or at least just way, way, way too expensive to ever try. And we actually spoke, if we have recordings of us talking about fracking and, and the possibility of getting the shale oil. It wasn't called fracking at the time. Back in the early 2000s, about at some point, if oil ever gets expensive enough, we're going to figure out a way of getting it out of the slate, out of the shale that's sitting in all over the place in the United States. And once we figure that out, prices are going to drop again. And people did, and they did, so it happened. And, and it, it makes us sound like, like we're somehow prescient, but this is just how the economy works. If it gets expensive enough to try some new stuff, it'll get less expensive again. Uh, we'll be back on the other side. If you'd like to join the conversation, we've got email addresses waiting at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. We'll be back on the other side of these commercials. And we're back. Welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, we're going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a real quick segue over to cybersecurity for a moment. Do it. This is something, usually it's just a headline for a couple of days and then it goes away. Cyber attacks, ransomware. Oh, they hit the pipeline. That was a big deal for a little bit and then it kind of fades away. Oh, they... They hacked Microsoft, or they hacked SolarWinds, or we don't even know who, who is Solar. We'll, I don't know. It doesn't matter. There is a full-scale war going on online right now. And a lot of the internet interruptions that you experience during the week are related to that full-scale war that's going on. And some of it is by individuals or groups that are just banded together for simple, you know, we have share, shared interests and we're going to go out and charge stuff. But a lot of these groups are organized in Russia and are compensated by the Russian authorities and are reserve intelligence officers of the Russian army. This isn't in doubt unless you ask Putin and who will just say, no, that's not true. Only he says it in Russian, which I don't, I don't speak. Um, the underline here is that there is a very real online threat to data right now. And the United States as a government is way behind the power curve and trying to protect against it. A lot of the corporations are turning to private solutions. And this reminds me a lot of the late 1800s and early uh, 20th century in the United States for banditry across uh, the West. So if a train was going through and it's a Wells Fargo uh, payroll 
and it gets hit by Billy the Kid in Arizona. Well, the Arizona police chase him until he goes into New Mexico, and then they've got to stop. And there's really nobody that's allowed to chase him across that border. And then if somebody's in Arizona and they're eventually convincing the folks in New Mexico to chase Billy the Kid, he just crosses the border into Mexico and nobody can chase him. And so a detective agency was formed, the Pinkertons, a private police force that was sent to cross state lines and sent to cross country lines to go and chase these thieves and bring them back to justice. That's the situation that we're living in today when it comes to cybercrime. Um, quite often, cybercrime ends at a state line, and one state doesn't have jurisdiction to follow somebody, even inside the United States, across that line. So they've got to go to the FBI. The FBI is starting to get its act together, but for a long time, they didn't even know how to deal with that. How do you even start that? So who do you report it to when your credit card gets stolen and somebody's doing or your credit card number is stolen and somebody's buying stuff in New Mexico? Well, you call your credit card company. Well, what do they do? Usually they don't even report it to the authorities unless they have some way of knowing which authority because it could be a little town Walmart in New Mexico. They don't have who, who they're going to call the local sheriff who's going to say, yeah, this was a $20 charge. So what? I, I don't have time to do this. I'm, I'm, we got patrols to run. We got things that we needed. We don't have time to go and do this. So we have a very real issue in that the burglaring, the, the robbery is taking place in an anonymous way where any single person is not usually a victim, either from insurance or bank coverages. So the insurance companies and the banks are hiring pol private police forces to go and catch people. And anybody that thinks about having a bank police force as being a, a, a safe and happy occasion uh, probably needs to look at history again. <laughs> this is not a good thing to have a private police force belonging to corporations that follow their own profit rules. So we've got to have some serious issues there. And we've been preaching about this, lecturing about this for years, that it's personal responsibility and you need to have antivirus software on your computer and you need to be careful about what you download. And at some point, the government has to get involved. And when we have massive hackings that, uh, that have hit the departments that we have put in charge of the security for our nuclear devices, like the energy department that got hacked in this last year. The government gets, needs to get more involved than it is. Uh, it is the Justice Department is comparing it to terrorism and 9-11 at this point. Uh, come on, let's, let's get real. It's not terrorism. It's not 9-11. People are not being attacked to prove a point. But there are deaths that are occurs, occurring. There are ransomware organizations that are directly causing the deaths of people at hospitals when they are not allowed to get to their medications. So this is a big deal, and it's affecting our economy. It's affecting our ability to grow. Uh, it's, it has to be something that we get through. We've got to get through this growing pain and figure out how to put good locks and have good keys on the data that is vitally important to our health. If you're in a hospital and a doctor 
prescribes a drug for you that you are vitally needing in order to survive, and then suddenly the computers are no longer accessible because of a ransomware attack, you could die. And that's the deaths that have occurred from ransomware. And there are groups of ransomware folks that say, oh, it's a hospital. Sorry about that. You can have your data back. We don't want to depend on the bad guys to say, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to attack a hospital. Uh, we also have lots of groups of bad guys that are just okay with attacking hospitals because they're sure to get their money. Uh, we've got some issues there. And bringing the awareness of those issues out in public, right front and center, to say your life is in jeopardy due to ransomware attacks. And if you've got a computer that doesn't have antivirus on it at this moment, when you are listening to my voice, go get some. It's free. If you've got Windows, you can, it, it comes already installed. You just need to make sure you're doing your updates. Uh, they're trying to make it easier to do this, but the way most of these ransomware attacks occur is you have these large, very large groups of zombie computers, they're called botnets, that have been suborned through emails or through uh, your, in, your password being insecure, uh, and these networks of computers have grown and grown and grown over the years, and those are the networks of computers that they use to access the other computers that they're, that they're taking away, that they're putting the ransomware on. So we all have responsibility here. But this is an area where we should fall back on the government because they're the ones that are supposed to enforce the breaking of the law, enforce the law here, come back in and stop the people that are doing it. If we're leaving it in the hands of corporations to go and do this, then expect there to be abuses. I mean, there's abuses when police do it, but at least they're accountable. When a corporation's doing it, there are other issues. And why are we talking about this on an economics program? Because it's affecting the finance system directly. Uh, and there are ways to protect financial information from ransomware that are readily available if people would do it. Uh, and doing that research is important. Uh, okay, so that was my that was my soapbox for the moment. Now you have something to add, say. Let me add something to this, and that is a lot of a lot of people concerned about getting hacked and getting their financial information taken and getting their access to their uh, information and their money. One of the primary ways that that's done is by you responding to a, a phishing email. And phishing emails, that's spelled P-F-I-S-H, I think. Not P-F. P-H. But it could be P-F. That would be another way of silly pronouncing an F sound. But we've got so many ways of saying F. When you get an email from a bank or something where you're doing business and says, click this link because we need to check your information or something like that, don't. That's simple. Uh, Go rather straight to the bank website the way you normally go there when you're trying to log on to the website and check to see if there's a message for you. If not, in most cases, banks will have a place where you can forward that email to the bank and let them know that somebody is trying to break into the system and they can, they can act on it. Whether or not they will act on it, I don't know. But the important thing is to recognize that don't click links in emails. Or links on your phone that come through a text. Right. They're doing it in text now. And 
sometimes you can pick up that there's something slightly wrong with it, and sometimes you can't. The, the important thing is, and I'm, I work with USAA. I'll do a lot of business with USAA. I don't I say work with them. I use their banking services a lot. They have a two They have a two. What do they call it? Two factor identification. Yeah, two, two factor. If I want to log in to USAA, they send me a message on my iPhone, and I have to put the number in. It's a pain in the you know what, but at least it's kept them secure. If you have the ability to get two factor authentication for your financial accounts, get it. And, and a lot I of think- times it's voluntary. This, this is a real quick wrap-up to that subject, but uh, Google has, you know, Alphabet has been using a system for the last three years that have led to no hacking in those situations where they give you a physical key. Get this, we're going back to that, that you insert into the computer when you sit down into it, and that is how you log in. That physical key is something you carry with you, and it's, it's a hard-coded chip that says who you are when you log in. And that's it. It could, be stole, it could be stolen from you. Just like the keys to your car could be. But you know when it happens. And that key can be changed quickly. It's not a password that somebody can guess. They have to use that physical key on site on your physical computer. And Alphabet's been using it and it's been working really well. We're about out of time this week. We're out of time. Oh, no. Not again. Yeah. We have so much that we still had to talk about. But if you'd like to talk to us off the air, I'm going to say this really fast. There's... Voicemail waiting locally, 947-1111, toll-free, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or you can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can contact us through the contact form. You can listen to our radio program going back. You can search for our podcast anywhere you get podcasts at uh, TPWC. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.